0: Welcome to the Programming Leadership Podcast, where we help great coders become skilled leaders and build happy, high-performing software teams.
1: this episode of Programming Leadership. I'm Marcus, and I am so excited to have Jennifer Jones-Petuli with me. Jennifer, thank you for being on the show. You have a rather long title. Could Could you lay that out for me one more time?
0: Sure. Thank you, Marcus. So I am a conflict management practitioner and leadership development consultant.
1: And, you know, when we met, I remember you said you worked with conflict management and, uh, I think I got like goosebumps because I thought, whoa, like I am not good with conflict. Usually I'm the runner to, be honest, I'm not the fighter, I'm the runner, but, um, this show, I think there's people out there who might have some conflict with their teams and with their boss And I wonder if they're runners too, and if that's the only option they see. But you intrigued me as we started. You said that maybe there's other other ways we could think about conflict. Can you tell us more?
0: Definitely, definitely. And most people hate conflict most people are runners. It is totally normal to have that feeling of fight or flight or freeze because conflict is stressful. And there are choices. And this is what I love about my line of work and where I've come from in my studies and practice is that we can harness this conflict, this tension as a source of change and possibility in our workplaces, in our teams, in our projects, and in our lives. And there are many ways to get there, but I want to pause right there.
1: Well, and, and if, since you can't see us, dear listeners, we're actually looking at each other over video. So she probably saw I made a face to that because it immediately thought about, oh, I thought how my mother always taught me that conflict was bad, but you're saying it doesn't, the way you're saying it doesn't sound like the kind of conflict I'm thinking of.
0: No, in fact, when I'm thinking about conflict, I'm thinking about it from the lens of complexity sciences, specifically from human systems dynamics theory, which really opened my eyes to language and and tools to help me unpack this. But if I go a little bit backwards in time, during my master's, I got really obsessed with this idea of creative conflict. And I went back into the literature and I started finding the work of a management theorist called Mary Parker Follett, who was um, a little bit forgotten in the 20th century, but She did her work mostly in the early 20th century and much of her thought on integrative bargaining became part of Fisher and Erie's popularized notion, Getting to Yes, their 80s book. Um, Mm -hmm. So it became very important in the conflict realm. And what's really important for us as leaders in the workplace and us as team members and family members is that conflict in itself, we are feeling a lot of negative feelings around it and that's natural. And when we're moving through it, It can be constructive or destructive, depending on how we choose to interact. So if we're afraid of conflict and we run from it, we're creating certain patterns. And if we're afraid from conflict and we stand in curiosity about ourselves and others, then we create different patterns. And just that simple choice at the beginning. And from there, a series of other choices emerge where you can then decide how you wanna go deeper or broader into these inquiry lines. There's a lot, there's a lot there.
1: There's a lot there. Yeah. One thing you said, I'm just curious about this as a a brief aside. Um, do you think, have you, have you found in your research that all cultures feel the same way about conflict through time and across the globe? Is it kind of a universally, you know, avoided thing?
0: Mm, That's a great question. And I love, um, the opportunity to play with that. My undergrad was actually in cultural anthropology. And when I studied it, I had no idea how it would feed into my work in conflict. And as I progressed, I realized it had so much to offer. Cultures approach conflict very differently. And whether we're talking about cultures around the world or your organizational culture, you'll notice patterns of how conflict is handled. You'll notice similarities and differences amongst the approaches people have, whether they face conflict head on or indirectly. You'll notice um, that there are cultures where avoidance is very much an important strategy. And you'll see other cultures where speaking up and having what would be looked at as a very strong reaction to conflict is actually part part of the process and accepted. So noticing what culture you're in and how that's same and different from your natural approach and noticing what is fit to purpose in your landscape and how you can start to maneuver and share and experience conflict in different ways and how when you go to new organizations that that might be same or different. And how you adjust and adapt
1: i'm starting to see things slightly different here and full disclosure uh jennifer is actually an instructor in the human systems dynamics program that i am currently undergoing uh and that's how i met her and she is using lots of asd uh, hsd language today which is uh kind of sparking my brain and i'm really enjoying it um but let's talk about when so what you're saying is that maybe when I run into somebody who views and acts differently about conflict, let's say I get very small and avoid it. They get very big. Um, I have a feeling about them, but that feeling, that might not be the only way to look at it. I might, because to be honest, sometimes I think, oh, they're a bully or I give it a name like that. But the reality is, is in their growing up in their culture, that, That was a successful and important approach to conflict that they learned. It's not just some inherent trait.
0: They absolutely learned that. And we learn it in our families. We learn it in our culture of origin. And we learn it in our cities we live in. Those of you who have changed cities like I have notice that there are subtle differences in the cultural approach to the way we not only navigate space, but each other and the tension that naturally emerges in both realities. Um, we learn all of this. And what's really important when you're noticing you're in interaction with somebody that might have a different approach to conflict is just noticing that difference and noticing whether that brings up judgment or curiosity for you, and how each stance, judgment or curiosity, offers you a drop down list of possibilities. And what I love about thinking about it this way is that um, you want a lot of possibility, usually. You want to have lots of elbow room to move in conflict. So if you click that, arrow, and you've only got two choices, you might have more struggle. Um, And if you have a lot more options, then you can navigate. And usually curiosity offers you a lot of opportunity to act.
1: You know, when I think about, so I'm imagining my little drop down. what a beautiful metaphor, like mine probably say, fight, flight. And I think you mentioned freeze. And that's not a whole lot of choices. But when you talk about inquiry and curiosity, that sounds really interesting but how can I even talk to the other person I'm in conflict with in a way that's curious? That seems like it would really change things. Is there, I don't know, like that seems so foreign to me, just I'm picking it up as a a mental tool and thinking, how would I go about using this? Do you have an example of words that might help?
0: Oh, definitely. And I think um, speaking and listening is such a Easy thing to say and such a hard thing to do. So, when you're facing somebody who's got a very different style than you, the first thing that's helpful is to notice what the style difference is and, and calling out the elephant in the room about style, right? Like, oh, you know, I've, I'm really much more reflexive and, and, and um, I like to not say things so directly, uh, and I notice something different. And, and you're offering me an opportunity to see things very clearly and head on. And if we're in conversation together, how do we acknowledge that difference? And not judge it or change it, but use it to our advantage. Because there are moments where you need to just say things point blank. And there are moments when you need to have a little bit more tact and diplomacy and reflexiveness. Um, Not to say that saying your mind is not tactful and diplomatic, but knowing how to balance something that might be upfront versus something that might come in the side door. And having that as part of your conversation. This is the setup. We're different. And that's an important thing because difference provides us with a learning opportunity. If we were the same, it could go easy, we want that. Most of the time I hear clients say, it would be easy if they just did this my way. Of course, the whole world would be easier if we just did it one <laughs> way, um, but that's not our world. Right. And our world is much more complex and the complex reality is beautiful. And that's where we change the most.
1: Is is conflict the same as fighting? Is that the same thing? That's a great question.
0: Um, you know. Conflict can carry a much broader notion of the experience. Fighting is certainly an expression of conflict, but conflict, I often use the word conflict and tension really interchangeably. There are nuances there, but for a kind of general conversation, they can be used similarly. Fighting and flighting and freezing are expressions of that experience of tension or conflict. So that would be kind of a difference I would draw and and it's an important difference to draw because it allows people to then say, well, I'm having a response to something I'm experiencing and this is part of that possible response list, but it's not the only response list. And I still could say, I don't need to just deal with the responses. I need to think about how I navigate tension and how I experience tension and how I would like to set patterns for the future of these conflict situations How am I learning from all the conflicts I've been in in a way that allows me windows into my management style, my teamwork style, my approach to my systems, and how I use my knowledge to influence the situations around me?
1: Okay, let me shift the line of questioning. I'm imagining myself as a manager, a relatively young manager, sitting with my team, and two people in the room appeared to be having a conflict, a disagreement of some sort. Now, at the time... I viewed that as a problem because I had been told it's good when we're all on the same page to use management speak, which drives me crazy. It, But I wonder right now, as I look back, is it a problem when conflict occurs? So I
0: believe that it's not a problem, but it can become a problem. It's all in the way you handle it as a leader and as a team member. So again, the options you have are key, but- When people are on the same page, it means you can progress quickly through a project. It means that there's not much contrast and that all things are linear and moving along. And that can be really important at different stages. When we want to bring something to a conclusion, we need some level of coherence. At the same time, there are some projects where if you have coherence the whole way through, you might be missing a very important element. Those conflicts could be key to improving your product, your processes, your teams. If you are missing an opportunity, then you might be missing an iteration that could be central to your future. So how are you handling those conflicts to check in? Do we have the space, the bandwidth, the skills to use this as an exploratory part in our cycle? Are we holding the space for difference in conversation Or are we shutting it down for the sake of, let's progress quickly to the end of this project? What is the goal that you have around this project? What is the goal that you have around this work that you're doing in Teams?
1: You know, it seemed like, and this is probably just me, it, it seemed like I was always in such a hurry there was always so much time pressure. As you were talking about what's the goal, it seemed like 99% of the time, the my answer would be to hurry up and finish so we can get to the next thing. It Does time pressure play play a part in how we handle conflict? Absolutely.
0: Time is such an important piece. And one of my biggest challenges when I'm mediating conflict is to make sure people take the time I often get people that say, I want you to do a mediation. We have about an hour. Can you help us solve this problem? <laughs> and I'm like, That's, yeah, an hour, we could we could get somewhere in an hour. And I do, I do know how to help people fast. But at the same time, I'm not a miracle worker and, and no mediator is and no manager is, right? You need time and you need to slow things down to get into that creative potential of conflict. So as we would notice somebody in a creative pursuit, taking time to reflect, taking time to ask deep questions taking time to engage with differences of opinion, of style, of ways, um, that gives you so much more data to work with. And that takes time to bring in that data and then find meaning in it and then take action with it. When we're going from project to project, we then become more like computers and humans. We can just move slightly through the problem-solving steps, A, B, C, D, done, which is fine in some situations. But when you notice that that's not getting you somewhere, you might have an opportunity there to back up and say, let's slow this down and let's see where we need to actually engage with tension and conflict for the purpose of going into this in a new way. And that means let's slow down. Let's not move right to the next thing. Let's learn from this moment right here. Let's learn from the tension. Let's use it to our advantage.
1: Wow, I'm imagining so many situations where I just wanted it to be over the conflict and i'm in that team meeting and if there wasn't time pressure i sure created some because i was uncomfortable if there are people who are listening and maybe they also feel uncomfortable being in conflict or around it do you have some advice for how we can start to start to change and see more options definitely
0: because it ultimately starts with us and our skills and readiness to stand in that place of tension. Now, tension doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be negative, but it can be very uncomfortable. As we talk about uncertainty and tension are just uncomfortable places to be. When things are humming along, we don't worry too much and we can go on autopilot. Um, But when we notice things get a little bit more rough, uh, we have to take a little bit better care of ourselves to make sure we're showing up in a way that can help us get to that creative potential. So there's the way you show up and noticing how you feel in conflict in general. And then taking precautions to make sure that you're able to come into a situation rested, hydrated, fed. Um, Simple things, very basic things. Often when I prepare people for mediations, that's what I'm saying. Get a good night's sleep. I know it's going to be hard. Try to clear your agenda a little bit. Try to think about questions rather than problems. Try to get your head in a space of creativity rather than judgment and work with that to start. The second part is having the tools and the guidance to move you through a tense situation without it getting worse. Because sometimes we walk in with the best of intentions we really want to try and then something happens, we get triggered, we go into our default fight, flight, freeze, which is totally natural and happens all the time to all of us. And don't trust a mediator that doesn't get triggered. We all get triggered. (laughs) (laughs) So call everyone out on it. It's fine. (laughs) But we need some tools to help us get back on track and mediators can provide that. Um, I do a lot of coaching with senior leaders and managers to help them keep their cool. I help people find that way to keep their professional heads high while they're in a situation. So those are tips and tricks that are really valuable. So the preparation is one thing, but then when you get triggered, knowing what triggers you is one of the tips and tricks.
1: What? Sorry Um, to interrupt. What does it mean to be triggered?
0: Uh, Yeah, great question. Um, Triggered is anything that just physically gets your heart rate up. That's a very simplistic kind of physiological example of being triggered. It might be something where um, you passionately kind of fight for. It could be something where you're ar- already primed to think in kind of oppositions, right? So um, since I've immigrated to the U.S., I've just you know been really watching uh, the debates and uh, the tensions that arise. And uh, I'm Canadian, so it's really fun for me to compare between Canada and the U.S. Um, Canada's not that much different in many ways. But you'll notice that there are certain issues that come up. And these are trigger issues. These are issues that get people angry right from the start. And these are things that people are very, very intimately tied to in some way. And that trigger things about their identity, their needs, their values. These are also situations where when you're choosing a right or wrong approach, a win-lose approach, there is no winning for anyone. Um, So when you're thinking about those things, so tips and tricks beyond taking care of yourself, noticing when you're triggered. So finding those physiological symptoms, like when your heart rate rises, when the hairs on your arms stick up, or when you feel like, you know, oh, there's this tension in your body. Um, you might also notice more cognitive uh, functions, like you're already going into opposition mode, or you're jumping into debate, or you've decided to pick a side. Like those are times where you might be triggered. And that's okay. Those triggers show you not only where the tension is in you, but also where you feel is most important for you at this moment. And there's nothing to sacrifice there. You don't sacrifice on values in your identity. That's what I believe firmly. But what you do is you use it as fuel for inquiry so that you don't give up your perspective as a leader or as a citizen or as a family member, but you use it as a ground to learn from because I know that you're just as passionate about things as I am. And here's the opportunity to grow and learn. I don't want you to change and you don't want me to change ideally, but we can both interdependently get new understandings, new insights. This is where I tell my clients, be selfish, learn. Learning is the most selfish, beautiful act you can do. And if you can use every conflict you're in to learn something, you've just done something selfish and beautiful. Selfish doesn't mean excluding and and closing off the other. Selfish means you can learn something from the other, like they're your mirror in life we have many mirrors
1: in life. We certainly do. So we've got so you laid out and as soon as you said tools, I thought of this bag of tools and as engineers we we love our tools and the first tool I think you laid out so nicely just to make sure I've I understand is be able to tell when you're triggered and noticing. And then the second thing is is not to say that's bad or good or judgment on myself. Oh, why did I do that? It happens to everybody, but also to say that must be really important to me at a almost a visceral gut level. And that's not something to be negotiated. Like that's about who I am, my identity or something. Am I kind of getting it
0: right? Yeah, you should just follow me around because I need someone to summarize what I say. (laughs) Thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would be honored. That would be my job in life. I want to take just a moment and thank my sponsor, Get Prime. Get Prime has sponsored the show, not just because they're fantastic people, but- because they really believe that leadership in engineering is about people it's about conversations and git prime is a platform that allows you to have better conversations with people. Yes, it has lots of other benefits. You can probably plan better. You can see metrics about individual performance. But let's just take that one idea about individual performance. Whenever I talk with a Get Prime user, and by the way, lots of my clients are Get Prime users, they always tell me how surprised they were at what was really happening on the team. See, it's really easy for you as a manager to observe generally how people are working. You can look at PRs. You can look at who's assigned what tickets. You as the TLM, the software engineering manager, you get a notion for what people are doing but there's always these beautiful surprises about who is really performing well and who's secretly struggling, about who's the person that's saving everybody's bacon through fixing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, and who is absolutely doing all the PRs. This kind of data lets you move from looking at people as just, well, they're all engineers and they're all kind of doing engineering work to seeing exactly where each one of them is strong, and has opportunities to grow. And that's why I love this tool so much. I believe that new and surprising conversations come out of data, that when you can sit down with somebody and start to understand and intuit why things are happening, you're gonna create even better quality of exchanges. And by the way, you know here on this show, we talk about the fact that leadership is what keeps people connected to their work and prevents turnover and keeps them motivated. It's about the relationship. I like to say that GitPrime not only lets you build better software, it lets you build a better relationship with your team members. Start a free trial today at gitprime.com. So, so then if some, what are some of the other tools that maybe, and I realize we have limited time, it's a podcast, you know, people would be at the end of the show, we're going to talk about how you can get in touch with Jennifer, but what are some other tools that people can start to use or imagine in these situations?
0: Yeah, there are many, many tools. Um, Two that I often reference a lot when dealing with conflict is uh, scale and interdependent pairs. Um, So let me start with scale because I've used this a lot in many, many conflict situations and it helped people think through things more strategically and breaking apart the pieces of it. Often I look, I use three, I use concentric circles and on the innermost circle, I use the scale of relationships. And there are certain strategies, some tips and tricks. You'll notice that most conflicts do have a relational element or an organizational element or a structural element, right? And there are different ways. Um, This comes from a long line of theories about the nested theory of conflict, Um, but I've adapted it with HSD in mind as well and with my work in conflict uh, for many years. So I'll use just three uh, scales. And I use three because... In HSD theory, in human systems dynamics theory, generally a person can only touch about three scales in their system. The nested theory has about 10 to 12, but it's also used for international conflict and analysis. If you're doing analysis and theoretical work, you can look at more scales. When you're taking action, chances are three scales is about as much as you can do because you you can't reach stuff beyond that. First scale that I look at, relational, second scale, organizational, third scale, structural. I start getting people thinking about the conflict they're facing, the conflict they're having, what's happening on the team, how is it relational, how is it organizational, how is it structural, what pieces fit into each category. And I'll go so much as to put this up on a whiteboard and get people to start writing in the circles what they think fits in each. And we'll have a conversation about that. And this will be really important because each of those elements of the conflict situation require a different strategy to move forward on. There could be some relationship pieces or some teamwork pieces that need to be addressed, but there also could be some very important organizational patterns that need to be flagged that are bearing down on the relational ones. Further, there could be some very key structural issues in the landscape that are bearing down on organization and relational issues. They are interdependent. This is where I link to interdependent pairs, because as we start to identify tensions that you're talking about in your conflicts as a leader or as as a member of your organization, you'll notice that there are some tensions. One of the big ones that I see is tactical versus strategic. I see this come up so much. People are saying we need to focus on strategy. Other people are saying we need to focus on tactics. An interdependent pair is not an opposition. If we're in opposition, we're saying we're going to choose one over the other. And we're going to say this one runs right now because this is what we need. We'll make all the justifications. What we need at all times in our complex reality and in our most intractable issues is to hold both at the same time. This means that we see it on a spectrum, not as an either or, and that at every given moment, we are asking questions into how we are tactical and strategic and when certain situations call for more tactics and when certain situations call for more strategic focus. So knowing that and seeing where we are on that spectrum, on that slider, is really key to the discussion you're having. So those are two tools in a very quick kind of description of how I would use them both. I would even use them together sometimes, or I could do individual sessions where we're just talking about each. And of course, interdependent pairs, I've only named one set, tactic, strategic. In conflict, we've got so many cooperative, competitive, self, other, there are so many things about it. And you can go endlessly into pairs. What's important about it is that both ends of the spectrum are positive because they feed into each other. You cannot solve a problem of liberal and conservative. It's an interdependent pair. Both are needed to govern society. So how are we asking questions and using it as such? And when we're talking about oppositions, we're negating one value, which means that going back to that drop-down box of possibility, you've just shortened your possible
1: Yeah, it makes me think that if I take the stand of liberal, then I say conservative is nothing, liberal is everything, or vice versa. It's all one or the other. Let's shift our our conversation for a moment because you mentioned this idea of being a mediator. And I'm curious if you believe that managers and leaders Ought to have some amount of mediation skills to help their team work through things.
0: Absolutely. I think there was, uh, there's a bunch of different stats out there about how much time managers spend dealing with staff and staff challenges and problems. And I I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was something high, like 80% of your time is spent dealing with problems and people problems. Is that, is that,
1: yeah. A lot. It's a lot. That's all I know. And phrases like, I feel like I'm a babysitter, camp counselor, right? These are tongue in cheek phrases I hear leaders talk about all the time when they feel like people are coming to them and they just wish they would work it out, but they don't. They don't wanna just send them away, that feels irresponsible. Yeah. So what's another alternative?
0: So I definitely believe most leaders as part of their leadership training need to have some awareness of how they handle conflict and tips and tricks to help others handle conflict. So I don't mean that every, every leader has to be trained as a mediator, but I do think there are some very important skills, uh, namely how to have difficult conversations, how to give and receive feedback, and how to help people in your team think creatively when they're experiencing tension, because essentially as a mediator, I'm not there to solve people's problems. I'm there to help them solve their own problems. I'm giving them the tools, the pathway, the safe space, the structure so that they can do what they do best, which is think through their live, their situation live in real time and apply real structures to it that will get them to where they want to be. Any, any sports coach would do the same, right? What are your goals and how do you get there? I do that with conflict, but I'm not doing the work for them. And a manager, similarly to a mediator, you can't do the work for your team. And you're not there to jump in and stop everything from being conflictual. You're there to help your team be their best and to help them find the solutions that they need for their very, very clear processes and work, right? And they have certain expertise that the manager doesn't have. And how do you harness that brilliance and harness that in a group setting? So a manager is an artist as well as a scientist and a manager can grow their team quite beautifully um, through enabling their team and each member of their team to use conflict creatively and ask deep questions to improve their own work and output.
1: So Jennifer, if somebody's listening and they think, man, I want tomorrow to be different tomorrow, I want to start doing something different. What can they do?
0: They can start by asking one key question is how is today gonna be same and different from tomorrow? And how do I want my team members to make today same and different from tomorrow? So a leader often spends time dealing with conflict because people are all caught up in what has happened yesterday and what will happen tomorrow as a consequence. And if we can start thinking about same and different, and if we can start thinking about how the patterns that you're creating today lead to tomorrow. So if you're gonna have a conversation with a colleague How do you want that to go? Thinking about tomorrow and how has it happened from yesterday to today? Asking key questions about what is same and different is really, really powerful. And asking key questions about what is same and different helps people think about the patterns in their work and how they want the patterns of conflict to play out. How are you learning from this conflict? How do you want to learn from future interactions? Of course, that's not the full the full package, because we know that there'll be resistance, right? I don't want to learn. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And now we're talking about how to deal with resistance. So that's another key thing. I think most managers will need to deal with this, if not tomorrow, uh, within the next few weeks, (laughs) no matter where you are, someone will resist. So this is the other piece is is as you're looking for things to do right away, look for the resistance that's present in your landscape and use that as a piece of inquiry as well. Why is there resistance? Because resistance is also challenging that time pressure, right? We want to get things done fast. And resistance, like difference, puts a little ripple in time and says, hmm, we're not going to go that fast. So using that as education. So what is that resistance? How am I hearing that resistance? How am I responding to that resistance as a leader? Is this resistance that I need to deal with? Or is this resistance that I need my staff to deal with? So separating the leader's role from the staff role and when does the staff intervene when does the leader intervene are another important piece of that but as i go there i'm thinking about four different thoughts now (laughs) and i'm sure your listeners are too okay because there's all like what about this what about that
1: (laughs) right yeah take us down there
0: so i think the first two parts of this is when you find resistance on your team When you find difference on your team, what questions you're asking is really the manager's job. So a manager needs to have a lot of good questions in that toolbox. And when I'm talking about good questions, I'm talking about open-ended questions that get information out into the open, not yes, no questions. So yes, there's a conflict, that's not helpful. Um, We need to know more. (laughs) So what are the tensions coming up? What are you noticing? A good manager will have questions that speak to those types of things. Um, I often use pattern spotting questions. So a couple, couple examples here are, in general, what are you noticing about this tension or about this interaction? Uh, what surprises you? What exceptions do you notice? What contradictions are you seeing? What do you wonder about? When you go down that line of questioning as a leader, you now open the conversation for people to be engaged in pattern spotting, and that gives them a lot of room to explore the challenge in new ways. Again, as I earlier mentioned, you want to use this for learning and you want to use this to improve and, and to create some kind of benefit out of this experience. So by using some of those questions, you can get at that. So managers tomorrow, see resistance, go through some pattern spotting questions. In general, what what, what are you experiencing? Or do it with yourself. You know, when you're noticing that resistance in general, what are you noticing about this resistance? What are the exceptions? What are the contradictions? On one hand, this is happening, but on the other hand, that's happening. Surprise! I'm surprised that you know this person said it this way. Um, a manager will run through questions for themselves and for others. So that's the second piece: is as you're thinking about questions, a good manager navigating tension will be asking them as many questions, asking themselves as many questions as they are their staff, and questions that open up thinking rather than closing it down. Going beyond the yes, no.
1: Boy, lots in there. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the, so you mentioned the idea of same and different and the pattern spotting questions. Um, And those sound like things that I could imagine doing, and I think you said this, but I want to make sure I understand doing alone sometimes, but also doing with other people. Um, on a whiteboard or with, with, with my team, I'm even imagining, uh, what is the same, uh, in this uh, you know, what's the same today as it was a month ago or what's different. Um, and does that reveal how people are feeling about things and what might be happening for us?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I've, I've known a lot of teams that have applied this right away, even to like 15 minute me- meetings in the morning. They'll just go through quick, like, okay, so in general, what are you noticing, you know, for your, for your work today? What are the exceptions? What are the contradictions? What do you wonder about? What surprises you already as you look at this, you know, and what do you need from your team? And I'll have people run through pretty quickly. You don't have to get into a big, deep discussion all the time, but quick check-ins, 15 minutes every day could mean a lot in this pattern spotting world and in this managing tension world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So were there any more thoughts? You said there were four.
0: Yeah, I think ultimately um, one of them was definitely mentioning certainty and uncertainty and how they interact. So when I work in conflict, um, of course, because I've come into contact with the Human Systems Dynamics Institute and uh, do a lot of work with them, we talk about certainty and uncertainty a lot. And this is something that conflict really ties into beautifully because conflict, every time there's tension, it provokes some uncertainty. Uncertainty about what will change and what will stay the same. What will the relationship be? Will it change? Will it stay the same? Will it improve? Will it degrade? Will the project get finished or not? <laughs> like We're thrown into this whole spiral and this is what makes us shut down sometimes is fear and the spiral of uncertainty. So alongside how we notice ourselves in tension, I invite leaders to always look at how they respond to uncertainty. When things get uncertain, how do you react? When things get uncertain on your team, what do you notice about the different team members and how they react and the different tolerances and intolerances to certainty? Now, in my experience working with scientists and engineers, uh, I spent some time with the Canada Border Services Agency as well while I was in the federal government in Canada, and I met the most brilliant people. And I met people with a high degree of certainty in their work. Specifically, the scientists, people doing biometrics, um, the engineers—they were just doing amazing work. And there were a lot of linear processes. And what I noticed in government in general was there was a lot of people that loved the certainty of being in government because they knew that there was a linear process that they could follow. And that was a good thing. And when there was uncertainty, it threw them for a loop. And we could negate the uncertainty by moving forward harder and faster in our processes. Okay, so step four is broken. Let's just find a bridge and go straight to step five because we're gonna make it through. Or we go back to step three and try and repair so that step four works. And the difference is when you can wade in a little bit of uncertainty, you can use that instead of going hard and fast to your linear processes. You can use a little bridge of uncertainty processes to help you then go back to where linear is possible use linear. And when linear is not working or when certainty is not holding, using tools to move through uncertainty in a way that allows you to take best action possible given the
1: situation. I, I like the sounds of this. I feel like this podcast should be called Marxist therapy, uh, because I am, uh, I'm actually in a project right now and it's highly uncertain is as you were talking about it, I, okay. So here's my thing. I like the idea of uncertainty. It sounds great. And it makes me feel as though I'm smart and enlightened. But the reality is, is even over this week, I've learned, I don't really care to sit in uncertainty too much because it makes me anxious. And if my wife were listening, she'd say, well, I've known that for 30 years. But, but the reality is, is like, I am struggling with that. It's a, this is not a pretend thing. And I am having those feelings of wanting to like, do I shut down? Should I leave? Is this the right place for me? I just am struggling to make sense of things. So it feels uncomfortable. And what, what I feel like you're telling me thankfully is, is maybe at the beginning, if nothing else, maybe it's just okay to be uncomfortable.
0: Absolutely. It's not only okay. Okay. It is functional to the experience. I wrote a blog a while ago about this um, just because I'm also a road cyclist. And if there's one thing that I found easy to compare was providing tension on the drivetrain while I'm cycling and what it feels like to be in conflict. It's uncomfortable. It takes energy, effort. I am sometimes my happiest and my saddest on my bike, (laughs) Just as I am in uncertainty and in conflict, it is not easy. And I don't think we came here to have it easy. Otherwise, we would just be working in solitary organizations somewhere like all on our own, right? Everybody would be an entrepreneur hiding from the world. But we live in a complex reality with massive interdependencies. And we seek each other out. Even though we say we don't want to be together sometimes in organizations, we end up going into another organization and meeting more fabulous, intelligent people that drive us nuts.
1: That's true. And I've noticed that, you know, the gra- when you're in one organization, you always think another organization is going to be better. So I'll change and the grass over there looks so good but it seems like it's just... And then we go back to the same. Right, exactly. It's the same old stuff. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on this show. Where can people find out more about you and your work?
0: Ah, great question. So right now, you can find me very easily through the Human Systems Dynamics Institute, hsdinstitute.org. You'll find me on the About Us page. You'll also see a lot of links to blogs I've written and recordings of some of the sessions I've facilitated. Um, Also, I am uh, starting... uh, a new initiative here in Hawaii, uh, productiveconflict.us. Uh, the website will be up probably by the end of the year. Um, it's my my place in time to bring uh, bring some of my work to the U.S. more officially. I was in Canada and I immigrated recently to the U.S. because I'm married to an American, and I was running my business in Canada, doing mediation and uh, doing some training for the HHC Institute, offering that around in their Canadian for their Canadian clients. So. More to follow on that. You can also find my work, uh, a lot of my blogs on Medium. I have a little page there under my name, and uh, probably if you just Google me, you can find me scattered around the cyberspace world. I don't know. (laughs) Let me know what you find. Ball hockey stats.
1: (laughs) Wonderful. We'll put we'll put links. Yeah, we'll put links to all this in the show notes, your Medium blog, and things like that. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. Thank you for listening to Programming Leadership. You can keep up with the latest on
0: the podcast at www.programmingleadership.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.